As I get started this morning, I've got just a couple of announcements and things that I would like for you all to know that are happening around and in the church this week. First off, next Sunday, all you have to do when you come next Sunday is bring your lunch money. We got lunch covered, okay? The CIY teenagers going to CIY move this summer are having a spaghetti lunch fundraiser next Sunday. So we'll come and worship and then we'll go right back and we'll eat spaghetti. If you have to leave for $10, we'll just let you leave. All right, so there you go. Also, uh, on <laughs> the day after our worship service, is a we're having a missions team meeting. If you're interested in knowing more about that, uh, right across the hall in room A is a mission meeting this afternoon, right after the service. And then one last thing, I'm really excited about this. Uh, we live in a technical age, and, and everybody seems to have some sort of a gizmo or gadget that will get them on the interweb, if you will. And what we have done now at Huntsville Christian Church, we uh, have available for you, if you would like to take advantage of it, online giving. And there's a whole lot of information about that on the back of your bulletin. We have also just a kiosk set up, and if you have some questions at the info pod, you can see Andy after church, he'll kind of explain some things. Um, and, and so it's kind of an exciting place for us. We've got online giving now, and, and there's even, if you give online, but you still like to to put something in the offering plate as you pass. They've, we've printed off little cards that just say, I give online, and, and as it's coming, you can still pray over your offering and, and just drop that in because there's some connection to that, and we realize that. So we're just doing some things different. Hope you'll take advantage of that. I also have to caveat this whole series in September, in, sorry, September, <laughs> January, February. I know, I'm excited. Um, it, this whole series in February is called The Eternal Struggle. And I, I'm typically not one of those uh, preachers who just goes online and finds a great sermon that somebody else wrote and make it mine. But I have to tell you, 90% of what you're going to hear this month is not my original thought or idea. It is from a gentleman named George Fall. He's a, um, a minister. He's a president of uh, Summit uh, Bible College in Indiana, Theological Center in Indiana, and he has worked over 30 years of his life on what I'm going to share with you. And I, I got wind of this through a friend of mine, and I listened to his series on the the, uh, the eternal struggle as I was preparing for this whole year of the deconstructed church. And I thought, man, that would be great if I could preach his sermon because it's, it's spot on in as we peel away the layers, as we get to the, to the core of where we should be, we find that it should be Christ who's at the center. And so I sent him an email. I thought, maybe he'll let me use it, maybe he won't. And I sent this email out, and like three days later, he called me. I get this call, didn't know the number. I answered the phone, and he said, uh, is this Brother John Lancaster? I thought, ooh, nobody usually calls me that. <laughs> yes, sir. Is this George Fall? I got your email. And he said, I just want to talk to you a little bit about that. He said, what are you doing? And I told him my whole year, like how I've had the whole year laid out. And, and he said, brother, I, I'm excited for you. And he said, I hope that, that my message will serve your congregation well. And he said, so, so with his blessing, and he also said to um, let, and it's not a pride thing that I tell you George Fall did this. I'm not trying to, to boast him up. But I think we should give credit where credit is due. And he actually, he has worked over 30 years of his life in putting this together. And he said he's, he shared it with other 
pastors in the past and they've taken it and made small books out of it as their own. And I told him I promised I wouldn't do that. Uh, obviously, I, I agree with what he has said. And what we're going to see today, this is actually an overview of the scriptures uh, from Genesis all the way into the life of Christ. And it's about how Satan tried to prevent the Messiah from coming into this world. There's three things I want to say. First thing I want you to know is we're going to spend a lot of time in Genesis. And you're going to think we're never going to get to the end of this in four weeks when we're spending so much time in Genesis. But we will get through the Bible. And on that, I want to encourage you to be here every Sunday. All right. Not because I'm an amazing preacher, but this is good stuff. The second thing is this. Don't judge me too harshly. And, and parents, if you have your kids in here, I want you to know this is probably going to be a PG-13 series. All right. So scripture, the Bible talks about sex and I will be talking about sex a lot in this particular series. But it's the Bible and it's in there for a purpose. I'm not going to go into detail, but there are a lot of sexual stories in the Bible that have to do with the Messiah coming. Uh, and so don't go thinking I have a problem, okay, because I don't. I just want you to know ahead of time that, that there will be some discussion. And I'm just kind of, you know, we've got Galaxy Kids going on in the back for kindergartners through fifth grade. But just so you know, uh, you may have to have some conversation later. Uh, third thing I want you to know is that you're going to see things and you're going to see this grow and grow over the course of the month. And you're going to see some things in God's word that you've never thought of before. You're going to see something, I may say a statement or something, that when you first hear it, you're going to go, whoa, whoa, I don't know about that. I just want to encourage you, don't let something that I say and pass by and, and something that I just kind of hit on, uh, I'm not going to be able to dwell on everything. So if you hear something, and I won't be able to chase a rabbit trail, so to speak, just make some notes and study these things afterwards on your own. And if you'd like, I'll talk with you more about it. I want to challenge you to, to listen to the theme rather than let one thing I say just kind of stick with you because there is it's like drinking through a fire hose of, of spirituality is where we're at a uh, fire hose of scripture but I, I'll be happy to share more with you uh, afterwards if you want but just entertain these ideas and later just kind of do your own study as we move through this the last thing I want you to know it's by no mistake it's by design that Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of the Bible he is not just simply the centerpiece of our history, and they're trying to take that away. I don't know if you know this, but we date our calendars from Jesus, and they're actually changing those, those meanings in our world today. He's the centerpiece of the Bible. All the people in the Old Testament looked forward to his coming, and after his coming, we all look forward to his coming again. He is the very centerpiece of the Bible, and you will hear... I'll talk about that from, from Genesis all the way through. Now, the Bible is divided up into three different dispensations. In case you're wondering what a dispensation is, it's a divinely ordered, or excuse me, a, a divinely ordained order. And the Bible's broken up into three of those. The first one is the patriarchal age. And what happens there is the, the father of the patriarchal age served at the family altar. The father was, was kind of the head of the family, he was the spiritual leader of the family. He took care of the family altar, and, and that's found in the book of Genesis. Until the giving of the law, and where there was now a high priest. So we go from the father in the patriarchal age to the giving of the law. We now have a high priest who serves at a national altar 
And of course, our Lord Jesus is the new high priest of the Christian dispensation. And we'll get to that as well. Now, these three different dispensations are very important. Not making a distinction between them can actually cause a lot of religious confusion. So I'm hoping I can iron some of that out for you. Uh, For example, I'm going to say it to you this way. What was spoken to the patriarchs is not something particularly that I have to do today as a leader of my family, as a spiritual leader of my family. So you have to understand the dispensation. You have to understand the time period. Uh, What was in the Mosaical dispensation, what was spoken to the Jews specifically, um, you know, is not something that we're going to do or practice today. And of course, there's that favorite old rule of hermeneutics, which means we have to determine who is speaking, to whom they are speaking, and for what purpose they are speaking, and then what the time frame is that they're speaking. If, If you don't make a distinction between those three different things, you're going to have a lot of religious confusion when you're studying the Bible and you don't just open the Bible and put your finger somewhere on a verse and say, oh, that's what the Bible teaches. It reminded me, and Kevin reminded me in his, his uh, communion meditation about the guy who was complaining to the pastor and he was just everything, he was just down on his luck. Everything was bad, everything, he just was in over his head and the preacher said to the boy, he said to the young man, he said, hey, the answer to your problems is in the Bible. You've got to study the word. Well, the preacher didn't see this guy for about four months, five months. And he comes rolling up. He sees him in town. He's driving a Mercedes. He's got, he's got a wife now. And, and she's got this big fur coat around her neck. And, and he says, boy, preacher, he gets out and just hugs him. He says, oh, thank you for that advice. It's the best advice I ever got. He said, you're right. The answer to my problem was in the Bible. And the preacher says, yeah, what's that? He said, well, I did what you said. I opened it up to study. I didn't know where to go. I just put my finger down and right there it was, chapter 11. You'll catch that about lunchtime. Bankruptcy. See, he started all. See, that's not what the Bible said, but that's what he found. You have to know what you're reading. You don't just get to grab it. It's not funny when I have to explain it, Matt. Man, thought that was a good one too. Anyway, we're going to look this morning. We're going to focus in on the patriarchal age, where the father is serving at a family altar, and where they would offer up sacrifices for the family. And it all starts in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. And this may be one of those ideas that you've never heard of that I was talking about earlier. Uh, Perfection was in the Garden of Eden. Okay? Only the garden was perfect. Man was placed in a perfect garden in the Garden of Eden. Everything was absolutely perfect. But when they were driven out of the garden, that's where the thorns and the thistles and all that stuff was. In the Garden of Eden, you couldn't have asked for anything better. And in fact, George Fall points out that throughout the days of creation, God continually says it is good. And then he creates man and says it is not good for man to be alone. And then he created woman. And he said it is very good. You see, women are the apex of creation. And of course, I agree with George Fall when he also says a man is not complete until he's married. Then he's finished. <laughs> I didn't write that one. I just. That's not, I don't believe that, honey. <laughs> in the garden, everything was perfect. It was just as God would have it. And, and here in the beginning, imagine this. They only had one, one, one Bible verse, one scripture, if you will, to memorize. They had one thing they had to know. And, and it's right there. It's in Genesis 1, 15 through 17. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, and this is all they had to know, easiest Bible verse ever, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, 
But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, look what we have here just in these in this short command from the Lord. We have um, a divine permission from any tree you may eat freely. We have a divine prohibition. But from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And a divine penalty for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So we've got a permission, a prohibition and a penalty. Now, Eve had a problem. She sidestepped a little bit. She misstated the permission. She overstated the prohibition and she understated the penalty. See, she agreed to God's word or she added to God's word and then she subtracted from God's word and she substituted for God's word, which again is a cause for confusion. God said, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But when Eve quoted it back to the, to the devil, to the serpent, she quoted back, she said, uh, when the devil called the word of God in question, Eve said, from... Uh, excuse me, God said, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. When she quoted it back to the devil and he called the word of God in question, she misspoke. All right. Satan says to her, surely you won't die. But Genesis 3, 1, Eve says, or excuse me, Satan says, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And then he contradicts the word of God. In Genesis 3, 4, he says, you surely will not die. And then Satan slanders the word of God in Genesis 3, 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. How successful was that with Eve? Well, it was very successful because she misstated the permission by subtracting. God said you may eat freely. But when Eve quoted it, she said, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. She left out the word freely. See, you may be thinking, well, what's the big deal? Brothers and sisters, if you don't see that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift, then likely you're, like Eve, going to fall into temptation and fall into sin. He said, you may eat freely. But Eve left out that very important word. She also misstated the permission. She overstated the prohibition. God said, you shall not eat. And look how Eve quotes it. She says, you shall not eat from it or touch it. She added to his words. God didn't say not to touch it. In fact, it's very possible that the devil tried to get her to do it. And when she touched it and saw that she wasn't destroyed or killed, that may have emboldened her to do what she was forbidden to do, which was to take a bite of it. That's legalism, overstating God's prohibition. And, and then, of course, she understated the penalty. God said, you will surely die. And Eve agreed with Satan, you will not surely die. Now, all this confusion is in her mind. And when she saw that it was good for food and pleasant to the eye and could make one wise, she took a bite. You see, that's the lust of the eye. It's the lust of the flesh and it's the pride of life. It's interesting to notice that Jesus was tempted with the very same things. But he, after 40 days of fasting, didn't give in to the lust of the eye. He didn't give in to the lust of the flesh and he didn't give in to the pride of life by jumping Tradition says that Adam and Eve were in the garden for 40 days. George Fall likes to think of that as in, in parallel with Jesus being in his time of fasting for 40 days. He had never eaten in the wilderness. They're in a beautiful garden, having and eating whatever they want. They could have anything they wanted. And that's the difference between man and Lord. Adam and Eve have eaten from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God said in Genesis 3, 14 through 16, you write this down, it's the first messianic prophecy. 
He said the Lord or the Bible says the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, let's look at this prophecy closely. God cursed the serpent. He said, you will crawl on his on your belly, eat dust and have his head crushed. It might interest you to know that all three of those expressions appear about all of the enemies of God. When you read through the Bible, in fact, Romans in Romans, the Bible says that God will bruise Satan under your feet. Uh, do you think that you're literally going to get to stand on, de- on the devil's head? No, you're not. But all through the Old Testament, and even to this day, we still say to people those kinds of things. Oh, you'll come crawling back to me. Or we say something like, you're going to get your head busted in. Or we all also refer to people eating dust. Eat my dust. Another one bites the dust. Those expressions are also used in the Psalms in reference to the enemies of God, that they will eat dust, that they will be crushed. It's powerful. I believe the devil appeared to Eve and tempted her, and she ate of that fruit. And when she ate of the forbidden fruit, the Bible says that she gave it to Adam and he ate it too. And in Genesis 3, verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. The Genesis 3.15 prophecy is the first prophecy, and it's actually the key to this whole series. It goes like this. God says, first off, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Talking to Satan. That's, That's enmity between the devil and Eve. Second, God says, between your seed and her seed, the descendants of the devil, his children, those who are like him, and her seed, which is Christ. They're never going to get along. And then third, God says in his prophecy, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. In other words, her seed, singular, Christ, is going to crush the head of the devil. Not literally, but the devil would be destroyed and you shall bruise his heel. So here's the first thing. The prophecy was that a Messiah was coming into the world. A Savior was coming into the world and he would be the seed of a woman. He doesn't say the seed of man. The seed of the woman, which is Christ. Now, our Roman Catholic friends believe that it's Mary who will have the power to crush Satan. But that's not right. It's going to be her seed. It's going to crush his head. But the serpent will bruise her seed's heel. First lesson, the Messiah is coming into the world. It's going to be the seed of a woman, which indicates a virgin birth. The very first promise, the seed of woman. The devil didn't catch that. And there's something else you need to know through this whole series about the devil. The devil is not God. All right? He is not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. And he's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. The devil is not God. He is a created being, and he doesn't know anything except he knows more than you and I know. He doesn't know what God's moves are going to be. He doesn't know how this is going to pan out. But he is not God. He learns by what he hears the same way we do, but he does know more than we know. We need to remember that. And here's what he's told. Satan's told a boy baby is going to come into the world And crush your head. And you're going to bruise his heel. Now, would you rather be hit on the heel or hit on the head? I mean, a head blow is a death blow. 
That's, that's not good. But you can get over a bruised heel. And when Jesus arose from the dead, that was like a hit on the heel to him. The whole concept of, of the crucifixion. And when he rose three days later, it was, it was like he was struck on the heel. And God is going to bruise Satan under your feet. It's a beautiful promise. We have a Savior that's coming into this world. And now, because Adam and Eve had sinned, they're driven out from the garden. They're away from the river of life, away from the tree of life. Cursed, pain, sorrow, death, frustration, thorns, thistles, dust. All that stuff is coming into their life because they sinned. And before God sent them from the garden, you may remember they had sewed fig leaves together and made coverings. I like to think Adam told Eve, I'll wear the plants in this family. Um, <laughs> that's the last one. All right. I just, I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. This is serious. We're talking about Adam and Eve. And God institutes sacrifice at this very point. They are driven out of the Garden of Eden. They're not allowed to ever return. And they believe the promise of a Savior because the Bible says that Adam called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And as we go out of the garden, I want you to know Adam and Eve had two boys. All right? And I'm going to get to Cain and Abel in just a second. But God at that moment initiated an animal sacrifice. He gave them coverings. All right? The bears didn't just walk up and say, here, here, take my coat. All right? It was the, the first sacrifice had been initiated by God at that point. Adam and Eve are out of the garden now. They have two sons. Her first boy, she called him Cain. She said, I've gotten a man child of the Lord, a baby boy. By the way, the word Cain means lancer or striker. All right. These, these are some unique things that you'll learn here. Uh, so the word Cain means lancer or striker. And she thought, here's the boy. He's the promised seed. He's going to... Strike the devil on the head. And then she had Abel. Do you know what Abel means? Abel means useless. She didn't think she needed this boy. She had striker. She didn't need it. It means useless. Now, I want you to do something with me. I want you to put on your sanctified imaginator. You're going you're gonna to imagine some things for a second. What I want to show you is that God made a promise. The devil said, I'm going to stop it. The Lord said, no, you're not. So the devil would try to prevent Jesus coming. And I want you to kind of picture a big checkerboard, if you will. I don't mean to be sacrilegious, but it's kind of how I vision it. It's a, this big checkerboard. And so Satan is going to make a move. And then God's going to make a move. And then Satan's going to make a move. And then God's going to make a move. Now, we already know who wins this game. But it's very interesting as we go through. Uh, the devil said, I'm going to stop it. The Lord said, no, you're not. The devil would try to prevent Jesus coming and God would move on the checkerboard and stop whatever it was that Satan did. God gave them Cain and then he gave them Abel. Now, you've got your sanctified imaginator hat on. What would you do if you were the devil and you knew that the seed of woman was going to destroy you and there are two boys, two brothers? You would try your best to make that boy striker be as mean and rebellious as you could get him to be. Live up to his namesake. And let me just tell you, Stryker was not a good boy. Cain didn't believe in the blood atonement. He wanted to offer works of his own hands. I remind you this, that Cain was not an atheist who says there is no God. He wasn't an agnostic who says, I don't know if there's a God. He wasn't a polytheist who thought there were many gods. He wasn't that kind of person at all. He was a deist. He believed there was a God, 
But he did not believe in the blood atonement. He did not believe in the death of an innocent victim in bloodshed. So he hated his brother and he killed him. The reality is this. Cain and Abel, or excuse me, Cain killed Abel after church, basically. They both had presented a sacrifice to the Lord, an offering to the Lord. Abel's was a sacrifice. Cain's wasn't. They were both worshiping God. What they hated one another on, the first murder was a religious argument. After the murder of Abel, Genesis 4, 25-26 tells us, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Now, Seth means substitute. Striker, useless, and substitute. Those are the first three boys. She thought, this is the boy. Substitute, he's the one. Gave him a good name. It matches the, matches the prophecy. Maybe this boy will be the one. You know, God also tells us that Lamech called his son Noah. And Noah means because he will give us rest. Rest from the land which the Lord God cursed. Everyone hoped that their boy would be the one through which the Messiah would come. And so what we've got here is we've got Cain and Abel. And now we've got Seth. And the Bible says the men began to call upon the name of the Lord, or as some put it, men began to be called by the name of the Lord. And that's what some people will put into that translation, so you have to be careful. But the idea here is that it's the beginning of idolatry. We can go ahead, and we'll see this later, but tradition says that Adam and Eve had 30 sons and daughters. I want to keep something in mind. When you're reading the Bible, and this blew my mind when when I looked at it on a chart, Adam knew Methuselah. Methuselah knew Lamech, who was Noah's father. And Methuselah also knew Noah. There's only four generations so far. Four generations up through all these generations. And it's because they lived much longer. But as we go on, I want you to know, the devil is thinking, what can I do now? Some boy baby, and that's all he knows right now. There's a boy baby is coming into the world to destroy me. What would you do if you were the devil? Well, I would get the world to become so corrupt. I would tempt men. I would cause every intent of the thoughts of his heart to be only evil continually. And that's what happened in Genesis chapter 6. Four generations after creation. So the world is becoming more and more corrupt in the eyes of the Lord. The Bible says here that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Only Noah was found perfect in his generation. Only Noah and his three boys never mixed seed. They didn't, do what they, they didn't do what everybody else was doing. And so God had to destroy nearly 60 million people on the earth at that time with a flood. As a result of the flood, we end up with only three boys. And when the Lord says in Genesis 6, 3, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. I think there's, this has been misunderstood. If, if I asked you how long did it take Noah... To, to build the ark and to preach, you would say 120 years. That's not as accurate as we'd like to think. Uh, the Bible says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. When that was said, Adam was still alive. The word man there is Adam. My spirit will not always strive with Adam. 
yet 120 years. And here's how we know this is true. Every time you read in Genesis chapter 5, it tells when a man was born, how old he was, when his sons were born. It doesn't just give a genealogy like, like in Matthew about the genealogy of Christ. Name, 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 boop, Jesus. It, it gives you more information. It gives the age of the fathers and the boys. Uh, for example, it, it says, Here are all the days of Jared were 900 and, or, excuse me, 962 years old. And Enoch, who was his son, lived 65 years and begat Methuselah. All right? It didn't just say begat him. It says how old he was. The Bible says when Moses begat these triplets, and that's the tradition says that Shem, Ham, and Japheth were triplets, Moses was 500 years old. I'm sorry. That's... <laughs> He was not. <laughs> I messed that up. When he got on the ark, he was 600 years old. But as you back through that, Noah says, um, or God told Noah to build the ark and said, I want you and your sons to enter in the ark with your wives. His boys were married men when he was told to build the ark. Noah did not spend 120 years building the ark. After the flood, when the, tree, when the three boys came off the ark, Noah and his family planted vineyards and crops. And at some point, you have three boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their three sons. And the Bible tells us that Noah had too much wine. And this is a controversial thing. Noah got drunk. And here's a place where also uh, Scripture can be misunderstood. It says, when Noah woke from the wine, he knew what his younger son had done to him. And he said, cursed be Canaan. You see, there's no Hebrew word for grandson. But George Fall in his studies shares that Noah was actually referring to his youngest descendant, Ham's son, Canaan. He didn't say, cursed be Ham. He said, cursed be Canaan. In fact, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. And then he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. There's no curse on Ham. The curse is on Canaan. The brothers walked in backwards and covered up Noah so that he could keep his dignity. But he, in that curse, there's also something else. We find that here that the Messiah, the coming Messiah, is limited. Scripture says he shall dwell in the tents or the tabernacle of Shem. We know the Messiah is going to be born of a woman. And there are three boys on the earth. But now the promise is limited. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. He shall dwell in the tents of Shem. So the Messiah is going to come out of Shem, not Ham and not Japheth. Now, what would you do if you were the devil? You'd do exactly what the devil did. And unfortunately, that's where we're going to have to pick up next week. And it, I'll give you a hint. It all starts in the plains of Shinar. So if you want to look that up, you can kind of read ahead and start to see where we're going. Now, how do you take all that that I've just given to you? And bring it into a response time. This morning I want you to think about all this. And I want you to think about two words. Because it's two words that started the whole thing. These two words aren't mentioned in the Bible. Um, you won't read them in Genesis anywhere. But these two words changed everything. And it was free will. One of the greatest things about serving our Lord is free will. We're not mindless robots who are just programmed and do something. We can study. We can question. We can dig deep into God's word. We can also make choices. We can choose to use our free will to honor God. Or we can 
sidestep and do what we want. Disobey God. You see, the eternal struggle continues. And, and even though we know the outcome, we know who wins, we're still living in that struggle as individual Christians. So I want you to consider for our response time this morning how you'll use your free will from this point forward. Talked a lot in January about deconstructing, about vision and mission. I want to challenge you as you begin to deconstruct yourself, as you begin to look at the heart of Scripture, as you begin to look around your world, your community, how your house is set up. I want to encourage you to just think about what you'll do with your free will. Just in, in six or seven short chapters and four generations of, of, of people, we've seen good and bad come out of free will. I want to encourage you to think about what you'll do with your free will as we stand and sing our response song. Will you stand and sing with us? It's been great to be here with you all this morning, to worship with you, to share with you, to challenge you. Um, maybe even make some of you uncomfortable going, hey, I've never heard that before, thought about that before. Um, but now it's time to go. As we go this morning, go with gratitude that we have free will. I pray that you'll use your free will to choose how you'll serve God and be a good reflection of him this week as you head out. Sing this last song with us, if you will.